Hello and welcome to Hidden in Plain Sight, the new podcast exploring one of the most fascinating mysteries of the Elizabethan era, the still unexplained disappearance of famed playwright Christopher Marlowe from a Datford tavern in 1593. I'm Julian Ng, your host for this series, and with the aid of director and dramatist Peter Hodges, we will be going back over four centuries to unravel the secrets of the confounding mystery of Christopher Marlowe's incident at Datford and the remarkable events that have transpired before and after. Many modern scholars say that Marlowe was murdered. Others say he staged his own death and escaped to the continent where he continued to write. 400 years later, the truth is still uncertain and continues to perplex historians to this day. In this eight-episode program, we will take a fresh look at this puzzle, one that I guarantee you is full of intrigue, action, and surprise. Together, we will discover if the truth has in fact been hidden in plain sight. Peter, thank you very much for joining me. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how it is you became interested in Christopher Marlowe? Thank you, Julian. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I moved to New York City in 1977, and I studied theater in college there and wrote and produced about a dozen plays while I worked in the corporate insurance trade on Wall Street. During that time, I also received a PhD in the theater from the New York City Graduate Center, and I recently published a book, Marlowe's Complaint, on this incredible story. I've been studying Christopher Marlowe and the events surrounding his disappearance since 1971, when I read Calvin Hoffman's book, The Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare. Hoffman wrote this book in 1955, and it became a bestseller. I discovered it when I was staying overnight at a friend's house in San Diego. They had a copy of it in their guest room, and I picked it up thinking I was going to be reading a murder mystery. It turned out to be the first time that I'd ever heard of the idea that Christopher Marlowe did not die in Deptford Strand outside of London, but that he escaped and continued to write poems and plays. I was fascinated. And over the years, I've done a lot of research on the question of what really happened in Deptford. More recently, when I retired from Wall Street, I started to focus my energy on getting to the bottom of this strange event. The result is a very surprising story reported in my book and now in our podcast. But... Before we get to that, Julian, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your interest in Marlowe? We first met at a Marlowe Society gathering in Canterbury. What got you interested in this subject? Well, Peter, being an educator is my day job, and I live in Canterbury. 
Usually when people come to visit me, I like to take them on a walking tour of the city. While, of course, the great Canterbury Cathedral is the centerpiece, there are many parts of the city with places that are named after Christopher Marlowe. And yet, very little seems to be publicized about him, and not many people actually know too much about him. One day, while taking another group of people on the walking tour, it occurred to me that the story of Christopher Marlowe would make an excellent book for a musical. So that's what I did. I wrote a musical called Kit based on his life. And I was assisted and encouraged by the late, great Ken Pickering, then president of the Marlowe Society. And I premiered a song from the show for the Society during Marlowe Day, an annual celebration of the life and works of Christopher Marlowe here in Canterbury. And that's how we all became friends. Yes. And I did something not unlike that. I brought my cast in from my play, Marlowe's Fate, and we staged Act One, Scene One for the Society on Marlowe Day when we met. And now we have links to your musical and my book, and I hope people will tune in to them both. Well, I certainly hope so too. So, let's set the scene for our listeners. In 1593, Christopher Marlowe was at the height of his success after graduating with his master's at Cambridge. He had already had several hit plays staged by the Lord Admiral's men, including Tamburlaine Parts 1 and 2, The Jew of Malta, and Dr. Faustus, to name but a few. And as we know, these plays survive today and are regularly revived. What most people may not know is that Marlowe apparently lived a double life as a spy. He seems to have had very significant government connections and possibly worked for the Crown as an intelligence agent. And yet, on 30th May in 1593, this brilliant and well-connected poet was reportedly or reputedly killed in a Datford tavern, being stabbed with a knife above his right eye. For over 300 years, there were only a few rumors describing this shocking incident, and we were not to know the official record of this tragedy until 1925, when Leslie Hodson discovered the Queen's coroner's report hidden away among a pile of state papers at the British Library. Peter, can you tell us a little about this report? I understand this report raised quite a few questions when it finally surfaced. There were a lot of things about the report that raised eyebrows. First of all, the fact that nobody even knew it existed for 330 years prompted many to question whether it was lost or hidden. Why was it that in all that time, the only reports of Marlowe's death were scandalous rumors? And then, when Hodson finally discovered the report, only then did historians discover that all three of the men actually in the room with Christopher Marlowe, Robert Poley, Ingram Freiser, and Nicholas Skears, all three of them had direct connections to the Queen's intelligence service. 
In other words, what had been thought of for over 300 years as a kind of barroom brawl that ended in a very messy murder with blood on the floor somehow included three secret government operatives. Four, if you count Mrs. Bull, the owner of the tavern. She was married to a relative of Lord Burley, the Queen's Secretary of State and head of the intelligence service. If you count Christopher Marlowe himself, who many today believe was also working for Burley, then everybody involved in this thing was in some way part of the intelligence service. In the report of the incident, the Queen's coroner is remarkably composed and detached. He doesn't question the witnesses. He calls them either gentlemen or businessmen. Their government connections only came out later when modern researchers had their names and could track them down. The coroner makes no outside investigation. He just records the statements from Poli, Fraser, and Skiers, which together claim that Marlowe was killed in self-defense by Fraser when Marlowe attacked him in the middle of an argument over the dinner bill. And then he lets them go. So at this point, people began to wonder if there wasn't more to this story than was included in the report. It all looked a little open and shut. So is it possible, for instance, that the report was a cover story for some action undertaken by Her Majesty's covert network? That does seem unusual. Perhaps Marlowe was a victim of a political assassination? That theory has been suggested by some scholars, has it not? Yes, it has. But to me, it doesn't really explain why anyone would need to do that, to assassinate him. What kind of threat could he have possibly been, Christopher Marlowe? It doesn't make any sense. Well, okay, let's back up. Maybe you could paint us a picture describing the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. I mean, what were the politics of that time, and what was the purpose of the intelligence service? Okay, well, in very broad terms, the issue of succession dominated the Tudor period from Henry VIII all the way through Elizabeth's 45-year reign. This issue was further complicated by the Protestant Reformation, which came to England when Henry broke away from the Catholic Church and created the Anglican Church. Henry wanted to annul his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon in favor of Anne Boleyn, but the Catholic Church would not allow it. As a result, he created the Anglican Church, and for the next hundred years or so, there was serious tension between these two branches of the Christian Church within England. The Catholics were, of course, obedient to the Pope, and he had excommunicated Henry. On the other hand, the English Anglicans were obedient to the crown because the king, as we have recently observed with the death of Queen Elizabeth II, is the head of the church, in addition to being head of the nation. So there was a constant dispute, sometimes violent, between Catholics and Anglican Protestants over who should be the rightful head of the country. The succession battles played out after Henry died in 1547 through Edward VI, Henry's son, with his third wife, Jane Seymour, 
and then through Henry's first daughter, Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. When Mary became queen, she reinstituted the Catholic Church as being the Church of England and began an anti-Protestant campaign that resulted in the suppression of thousands of Anglicans and the exile of over 800 of the wealthiest and the death of almost 300 more, many of whom were burned at the stake. History remembers her as Bloody Mary. Mercifully, she passed away four years later in 1558, and the crown fell to Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn. Well, I guess when you have politics and religion, it always becomes a deadly mix. And now Elizabeth comes along with threats on all sides. Exactly. And when Elizabeth became queen, she restored the Anglican Church to prominence, making herself both head of state and head of the church. And meanwhile, the Catholics continued to agitate, and the person they rallied around was Mary, Queen of Scots. We all know the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, and how she was ultimately put to death at the hand of the queen who signed a warrant supposedly without realizing that she was putting Mary to the axe. The people who stage-managed all of that were the people in charge of the intelligence service, Sir Francis Walsingham and Lord Burley. These are the same people who a year later, in their own words, employed Christopher Marlowe while he was still at Cambridge in matters touching the benefit of his country. Meanwhile, the man who got the evidence against Mary, the spy who got her signature on a pro-Catholic plot to assassinate Elizabeth, was Robert Poley, the same man who was in the room in Deptford with Ingram Fraser and Nicholas Skears when Marlowe supposedly met his fate. So Marlowe had been involved with some very powerful people for quite a while. But unlike Mary, Queen of Scots, he could count upon them as friends, not as potential assassins. <laughs> well, you say he had powerful friends, but it was a world full of conspiracies, both religious and political. In my walking tours of Canterbury, I'm often asked what Marlowe's role in all of this was. I mean, what do you think? Do you think he had a hand in all of these machinations? Well, there's no evidence that he ever betrayed the Queen or any of her friends. But most of the standard histories claim he was accused of heresy and atheism. Those were allegations made by his enemies. They were repeated after he disappeared and he never had the chance to refute them. Other people, his friends, called him Sweet Kip and the Muse's Darling. I prefer to side with his friends on that point. So would I. However, atheism was a very serious charge, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Under Elizabeth, an accusation of atheism would be the most terrible charge imaginable. Catholics could be tolerated as long as they submitted to her rule, it was much more dangerous to be an atheist because the crown comes to the queen by virtue of divine right, which is granted by God himself. Denying divinity is denying the foundation for the entire state. It's the same thing as sedition. Hmm. 
as I understand it, a series of pamphlets were printed and broadsheets had actually been posted around some of the churches in London alleging just that. Wasn't Marlowe accused of being involved in that during that period? In early 1593, there was growing agitation amongst a group known as the Puritans. They viewed the Anglican Church as being corrupt. There were publications, pamphlets that were put out under the name of Martin Mar Prelate that accused the Anglican Church of hypocrisy and fraud. Archbishop Whitgift did not like having his church criticized in this manner, and there was a very intense manhunt for the author of these pamphlets, as well as active suppression of the Puritans. Dozens of people were arrested, and some of them were hung. In the middle of all of this, in April of 1593, a broadside, now called a Dutch church libel, was posted on the wall surrounding the Dutch church yard, and it accused the Huguenots, who were Protestants coming over from Flanders, of being agitators and stealing good Englishmen's jobs. Basically, it was trying to stir up unrest between the English and the Huguenots who had moved into that section of London near the church. It's filled with all sorts of smears and provocation, and throughout it makes references to the plays of Christopher Marlowe. It's signed Tamberlane, and it threatens a Paris massacre. One of Marlowe's plays was titled Massacre at Paris, and had just been performed in January. The libel also talks about Jews, referring to the Jew of Malta, another play by Marlowe. So it's very clearly trying to tie Christopher Marlowe together with the Puritans as part of an underground of defiance. Yeah, I think the link to Marlowe is quite shocking. And really, there would be very little room for him to maneuver, I suppose, particularly if Archbishop Whitgift of Canterbury was leading a search for heretics. I believe Marlowe was arrested as a result of this libel? Yes, he was. He was allowed out on bail on condition that he report daily to the Privy Council. And what is this Privy Council? The local magistrate or something higher? Actually, they were the highest of the high. They were the Queen's closest government councillors. This included Lord Burley, Sir Francis Walsingham, Archbishop Whitgift, and the Earl of Essex. Marlowe was being watched by some of the most important people in England, and some of them suspected him of sedition. This would be in May 1593. Now, the story I tell on my Canterbury tours is that at that particular moment, more and more inflammatory evidence against Marlowe surfaced. A note from the spy Richard Baines accused him of atheism. And then Marlowe's roommate, Thomas Kidd, also a writer, confessed after being tortured on the rack that a pamphlet debating religion found in his room actually belonged to Marlowe. I guess the pressure on Marlowe is reaching a fever pitch. 
And just at that critical moment, he takes the time to visit the Riverside Inn of Dame Eleanor Bull in the company of three members of the Queen's Intelligence Network. <laughs> Sounds quite incredulous to me. Peter, you've told us about Robert Poley and Mrs. Bull. What about the other two men? What 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 do we actually know about them? Um, Ingram Fraser is known to have been a personal factotum, an errand man in the real estate business and other types of business, both for Thomas Walsingham, Christopher Marlowe's patron and friend, and for Audrey Walsingham, who was Thomas Walsingham's wife. They both used Fraser as a business agent in a lot of different ways. Thomas also worked for his cousin, Sir Francis, as an intelligence agent. Marlowe stayed at Thomas's house in Scadbury during the time that he was reporting to the Privy Council. Nicholas Skears, meanwhile, was also involved in the service more peripherally. He's acquainted with Fraser, and they did a number of deals together. And in fact, Skears worked for the Earl of Essex in Essex rival intelligence faction. So you have all of these people who are, in effect, intelligence professionals of one kind or another. And it seems likely to me and to many observers that if Marlowe was indeed the target of an attempted assassination, then these three people and Mistress Bull would not have been standing around afterwards to plead their innocence. More likely, a killer of this type would have disappeared into the night and no one would have known who did what. Instead, they make their excuses to the Queen's own coroner who left the report for Leslie Hodson to find. It was unusual for the Queen's coroner to be involved at all. He would not have been available but for the fact that the Queen herself was at Nunsuch Palace. This put her in what is known as within the verge. She was 12 miles from the particular scene in Deptford, on the Thames, where this particular house, run by this particular woman who had a particular relationship with the head of the Secret Service, who at one time or another employed all the men in that room. Now, the fact that the Queen's coroner was involved meant that no local magistrate could intrude. If the coroner wanted to close the matter right there without any further investigation, he could, and he did. A lot of people think that is very strange. <laughs> to quote the great Lewis Carroll, curiouser and curiouser. However, I have another question. We have talked a lot about this spy network, but what was it exactly? I mean, were these men, Poli, Fraser, Skiers, were they part of an organized group, you know, like the military, or were they all free agents coming and going as they pleased? Well, that's a good question. Sir Francis, in fact, was the first person to create an organized team of informants on a national scale. 
Prior to that, various counselors of the queen kept their own informants in-house and as part of a personal retinue. They tended to focus on local issues, not on national concerns. So Sir Francis was an innovator in this regard. He still had to pay for it out of his own pocket. That's how things were done in those days. But the service he created was cohesive enough that when he died, Burley was able to pick it up and pass it on to his son, Robert Cecil. This was the organization that engaged Marlowe when he was at Cambridge. It was new and unique with international scope, just the kind of thing that would seem attractive to an enterprising Cambridge scholar like Christopher Marlowe. So what you're saying really, Peter, if I'm not mistaken, is that when the four of these guys gathered together at Mrs. Bull's establishment, we can expect them to actually have a mutual purpose, a sort of job to do, rather than it just being a chance, leisurely meeting in an out-of-the-way tavern near an isolated wharf. That's what I think. <laughs> I want to hear more about Marlowe himself. We've talked a lot about everybody else and the period and the politics. And, you know, I think we now need to explore Marlowe and his possible double life as a playwright and intelligencer. However, we're just about to run out of time here in our first episode. So I'm going to suggest that we make that our topic in episode number two. Agreed? Agreed. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I very much look forward to digging deeper into the mystery of Christopher Marlowe's disappearance and the incident at Deptford in our next illuminating episode of Hidden in Plain Sight. those of you who want to jump ahead, you would do well to pick up a copy of Marlowe's Complaint, the book that reveals the rest of this incredible and fascinating story. You can check out Chapter 1 online for free. It's a fun read, and I highly recommend it, of course, but then I wrote it.